Great to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. If you're a guest or visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, if, if I haven't had the chance to meet you before, uh, I would love to meet you after the service uh, to welcome you and just thank you for being here and, and get to know you a little bit. Um, and also, if you're a guest or visitor and, and you didn't know that we we're having a picnic today, uh, you are still welcome to come. So, um, you know, please come, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we will probably have uh, more food than just all of us can eat. So, uh, so please come, and, and we would love to see you. So, um, so don't, don't let this being your first Sunday or second Sunday stop you or prohibit you from coming. We'd love to see you. Well, friends, we are in the book of Exodus. We've been there for the last number of weeks, and we are coming to one of the most famous portions of the book of Exodus. I was trying to think about this the other day. Uh, if I was to rank them, how I would rank them as the most well-known, probably the parting of the waters, right? That It's a pretty well-known uh, section of Exodus, maybe the burning bush, but then certainly this section, the plagues, chapter 7 through 12. This is one of the most well-known sections. It's depicted in movies like Magnolia and literature. Different aspects of the plague show up throughout pop culture. So they tell us that these aren't just aspects that the Christian faith knows about, that the believer knows, but that our world knows. And that's the passage we're at right now. We are looking at the plagues. And there's a, a number of different ways that we could broach the plagues. We could uh, spend the next 10 weeks looking at each one individually. Uh, we could do it that way. Um, that, that's one way we could do it. Or we're going to do it uh, the way that I'm planning. And that's we're going, going to look at the first nine all at once today. So it's going to be a really long passage to read, and, and we're going to, I'm just kidding, it won't be long at all. Um, but the reason why we're doing this, the reason why we're going to look at nine of them is because there are, there are themes that are repeated throughout the plagues. And so instead of looking at individual ones and drilling into them, uh, we are going to take them from a, a big picture perspective and look at these first nine, and then we'll look at the 10th and, and the institution of the Passover in the next couple weeks. Um, but that's what we're going to do. And so because of that, I would encourage you to follow along in your order of service um, because the passages we're going to be reading from are, are printed there. We're going to read excerpts from the various chapters. So uh, if you would, please follow along in your order of service. Beginning in chapter 7, the locusts came, upon, came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts had, as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. We know that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not do as the Lord had commanded. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come into your house and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the house of your servants, and your people, and into your ovens, and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you, and on your people, and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Chapter 9, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And now chapter 10. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from this place, from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, C.S. Lewis concludes uh, his wonderful series, The Chronicles of Narnia, with the book, The Last Battle. Some of you know this book, The Last Battle. Uh, you know it because there's this wonderful line that is in The Last Battle as Lewis is describing uh, his vision of heaven, the heaven of Narnia. It's further up and further in, right? That's how the people are supposed to go, that those who are ushered into heaven, they would go further up and further in. And as they go further up and further in, they will see more of God's glory, more of his beauty, more of his wonder, further up and further in. Well, if you know that line, then surely you also know that long before that line is stated, there is tumult, there is disruption in the land of Narnia. You see, Aslan is king of Narnia, this magical place where there are different sorts of creatures, dryads and minotaurs and centaurs and talking beasts. Aslan is the, the god over this, right? This Jesus figure, this lion who rules over Narnia. But Aslan's been away. And in his absence, there are those who are trying to lead Narnia astray. You remember there's a donkey and an ape, and they come across this carcass, this pelt of a dead lion, and they think it would be funny for the donkey to wear the pelt of the lion and pretend to be Aslan. They start to convince Narnia that Aslan is returned, but instead of the, the graceful and the merciful Aslan, what they come across is one who is cruel, vengeful, this Aslan is doing things that they had never expected the true Aslan to do. He invites their enemies, these foreigners from a foreign land who do not know Aslan, who worship a different god. They invite him, these enemies, into the land, and they bring with them their god. After a while, these enemies, they start to influence, and they start to have power and, and influence over the people of Narnia, and they do so with their god, this god Tash. And they say to the people of Narnia, Tash or Aslan, Aslan or Tash, it, it really doesn't matter which you worship, they're the same God. After a little while, they actually combine their name. Remember, they say he's just Tashlin. There's one God. And it doesn't matter actually what you call him. All that matters is that you call out to him, Aslan or Tash, Tash or Aslan, Tashlin. It doesn't matter as long as you call out to him. After a little while, the Narnians start to be influenced by this. And some of them start to believe. 
They know this is different than what they had heard before, but they start to believe maybe there really isn't just one Aslan. Maybe, maybe it really doesn't matter who you call out to. Does that sound familiar to y'all? Sounds like our world, doesn't it? Sounds like the world that we live in. It doesn't matter who you call out to. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter which God you serve or what religion you follow, so long as you do it with sincerity, right? I mean, that's the word of our world. In fact, Charles Schultz, the the creator of our Peanuts comics, those wonderful little stories, he said near the end of his life when he had embraced secular humanism, he said, it doesn't matter what you believe, just as long as you're sincere. Is that true? See, that's not just our world. And it's not just the world of Narnia in the last battle. That's the world that Israel is inhabiting in our story. You see, Israel is living in the midst of Egypt, which is a polytheistic culture. It's, it's a culture that embraces any sort of God. And you can just pick and choose. When, when you need rain, you call on the rain God. When you need sun, you call on Ray, the sun God. When you need children and fertility, you call on Heket. We're going to talk about Heket in a little bit. But you call on Heket, and you find children. They you just pick and choose whichever God that you desire, and it really doesn't matter. That is the world of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus chapter 5, when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, here is the Lord, the Lord has come to our people, and he says to you, let my people go, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Now, that question isn't a question birthed out of atheism. That is a question birthed out of a polytheistic culture. We have hundreds of gods, so maybe Yahweh is just another one of them. That is the world that Israel finds itself. Now, what does that have to do with the plagues? Because I thought that that's what we're supposed to talk about, right? Some boils and gnats (laughs) and darkness and, and frogs. Like, isn't that, what does this have to do with the plagues? It has everything to do with the plagues. You see, these plagues weren't just chosen willy-nilly. They weren't half-heartedly chosen by God. They're chosen for a particular purpose. You see, God isn't just showing that he has authority over the created order because Egypt could have said, well, our gods do as well. They could have just wiped that away. No, God specifically chose these plagues because they also show not just that God is the creator of the universe, that he has absolute authority over the world, but also because it shows that these gods of these domains are nothing in compared to Yahweh. That those are just pseudo-gods. But that Yahweh is the true God. And that's the first thing I want us to see from these plagues. That these plagues are signs signs that God is the true God. In fact, that's how God refers to them. He says to Pharaoh, I will plague you, but he also says, I'm going to show you signs and wonders. Signs and wonders to Israel and to Pharaoh that the Lord isn't just any God. He is the true God. It's the first thing that we see, that he is the true God over the world. Now, I just said that the plagues aren't haphazard, right? They're there's a particular reason that they're given. Now, some challenge the economic well-being of Egypt, like with the cattle being destroyed. Some would have challenged their comfort, right? Gnats, like, could you imagine gnats all over you, right? Like, those can't see right? I think that's what they call them in South Georgia, right? Those can't see like, all over you all the time. I mean, that would be kind of, ugh, right? Um, but that's not why God gave those signs. 
not simply to challenge their economic stability, not to make them uncomfortable, but to show that he is the true God. And so let's look at two of these plagues, two of these signs. The first is frogs. So frogs. Frogs in your bed and frogs in your bowls and frogs in your house and frogs everywhere, right? The Jesus Storybook Bible says frogs in your head and on your hair and everywhere, right? That, that that's where they are. Now, why frogs? It's not just so Magnolia could have an interesting biblical quote in their movie. It's, it's for a particular purpose. You see, the fertility goddess of Egypt was named Heket. And Heket was depicted with a frog for a head. And so I want you to think about that for a second. Where did God say that the frogs would go? Well, we read it in chapter 8. The Nile will swarm with frogs into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and in the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Where are the frogs? They're everywhere. But where did they begin? In your homes and your bedrooms and your beds. Okay, it doesn't take much imagination to see what God is doing here, right? If the goddess of fertility is depicted as a frog, well, her domain is the bedroom, right? And the bed. Okay, just think about that. Frogs, right? Okay, think about what you do in your bedroom. Married couples, right? Frogs, all over, in the bed. That wouldn't encourage you towards fertility, right? Like, like you wouldn't want to go in your room. And so what God is saying is actually that domain that Heka is supposed to rule over and have dominion, mm -mm. she has no authority there. Yahweh is the God of that place. Yahweh rules over that place. Okay, so that's one. Think about darkness. That's the second plague I want us to consider. We read about that in chapter 10. It's the ninth of the plagues. Now, now i got to be honest, this week as I've been reading through these plagues, at first I thought boils would easily be the worst, right? Like those are pretty disgusting, they'd be painful, there's pus, it's gross, right? Like that would easily be the worst. But then I thought about darkness, and I thought about how it progresses, how the plagues progress, and how they seem to get in greater severity as they go along. I mean, darkness, three whole days in darkness, we can't imagine that, how oppressive that would feel. Ernest Shackleton was, a, uh, was an explorer in the early 1900s and late 1800s, and he tried to uh, traverse across Antarctica on foot. But his boat got stuck in the ice, and they couldn't dislodge it. This was January of 1915. Okay, like think about that, walking across Antarctica, like there was no North Face, right? They didn't have like coats like we do, right? And they are stuck in the ice. Now his biographer reporting on this and writing about it, he said, in all the world there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. It is a return to the ice age, no warmth, no life, no movement, only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Few men unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. Madness. Darkness. God said that the darkness would be so dark that it would be felt. Can you imagine that? 
It was so dark, people didn't leave. That's what the passage told us, that they didn't rise from their place for three full days. It would have felt like the world is coming apart. And that's actually what a lot of theologians think the plagues are doing. They are slowly unraveling the created order that God has set in place. Do you remember in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created the heavens and the earth, and before he created man and the stars and plants and, and animals, before he made any of those sorts of things, and he set his world in its created order, we're told that the earth was what? It was formless and void, and darkness covered the deep. See, this plague, it's actually unraveling the created order. It's returning things to, to the state in which it once was before there was order. God had structured the world, and God is now unraveling it. It would have been maddening. Three days in darkness. For, is, for Egypt, it's, it wouldn't have just been this oppression, but it also would have been challenging their understanding of the religious world. You see, their highest god was Ray, the sun god. And they believed that Ray had created the world. Ray, the sun god, who was defeated by darkness. We don't know how the darkness came. We don't know if the sun just did not rise. We don't know if it was just filled with clouds. We don't know how it came, but we know that for three days, Ray could not pierce the darkness. You see, God is greater than the greatest God of Egypt. That's what he's telling us. That's what this sign is depicting for us. That there is only one true God and his name is Yahweh. That's why God is giving these signs again and again and again. He's telling Pharaoh and Israel who he is. In fact, three times throughout this narrative, through 7 through 9, God tells us why he's giving us these signs. In chapter 7, verse 17, he says, This plague will come on you. You shall, not, you shall now know that I am the Lord. In chapter 8, verse 10, this plague will come, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. And in verse, chapter 9, verse 29, that this plague will come, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Prayer that you would know that there is no other God but Yahweh. That he is the one true God. Do not be deceived, Pharaoh, there's one. Do not be led astray, Israel, there's one. Church, do not walk in blindness. There's but one God, and his name is the Lord. He is Yahweh. That's what these signs are showing us. They're showing us that he is the true God, but they're also showing us that he is the merciful God. Now, I imagine uh, if you knew we were talking about the plagues this week, you would have come in, you probably wouldn't have thought mercy, <laughs> right? The plagues, mercy, right? You would be thinking judgment, and you'd be thinking, right, and yet there is mercy to be had in these plagues, in these signs. Now, we didn't read them, uh, but when we get to the flies and livestock and hail, we did read about darkness. We see that in each of these signs, God is actually protecting Israel. So, for instance, when darkness came, we read it in verse 23. Darkness comes upon the land of Egypt, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Okay, how about making a clear distinction over who God's people are and who they are not? There's darkness over one part of the land, but where Israel is, where God's people is, there's light. We see that with the livestock as well. Egypt's livestock, they're destroyed, they're killed, but Israel's livestock 
are protected. They're protected. God is showing mercy to his people, but it's not just mercy for Israel. It's also mercy for the nations. We read in chapter 9, in verse 15, God says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Did you hear that? The protecting of Israel, the thwarting of Pharaoh, the judgment upon Egypt. It, God has the nations in mind when he is doing this. It's not just for the sake of Israel, it's so that the nations would know of this Lord, that all the earth would hear of his name. And that implies the the understanding that as they know and as they hear that there is only one true God, that they would turn from their false gods and they would embrace Yahweh. That is the direction in which it is going, that judgment would lead to mercy, not just for Israel, but for the earth, for the nations. That's the paradigm that we're seeing. God's mercy comes through his judgment. We see it in this passage. But friends, we see it even fuller in Christ. We see it in Christ because in Jesus, that's where we see judgment and mercy coming together, where the two of them kiss. See, in order for God's mercy to be poured out on us, judgment for our wickedness had to be paid. And it was. Jesus took the judgment that we were deserving upon himself. And in his place, in that place, we experienced not judgment, but we experience mercy, and we experience grace. I mean, think about as darkness fell on the land of Egypt for three days, when Jesus was nailed to the cross and he bore our sin, it went dark for three hours. For three long hours, darkness reigned. For three hours, darkness reigned over the land as judgment was meted and as mercy was given. You see, Christ did something that no god of Egypt could or would ever do. He humbly took on flesh, and he mercifully took our judgment upon himself and died for the sake of his people. He gave his life so that we would not be plagued by the judgment that our sin deserves. That's what he did. That judgment led to mercy. That the judgment we were deserving came upon Christ and gave us the mercy of God. That's what these plagues are showing us. That's what they are signs of. That God is the true God and that he is the merciful God. Okay, but what are we to do with this? Like, what is our response to be to these truths that God is the one true God and that he is the merciful God? How do we respond to this? Well, we respond the same way that Israel responded or was supposed to respond. We serve him. We serve him. You see, he is the God that we serve. That's what God tells Pharaoh again and again and again. Let my people go that they may go into the wilderness and serve me. In fact, from chapter 7 through 12, 13 times that word serve is used. And in every one of them, it's talking about Israel being sent out into the wilderness to serve the Lord. And eight of them are explicitly stated by God. Let my people go that they may serve me. Okay, what does it mean to serve the Lord, though? Well, in this way, it's, it's being used in a technical sense. To serve means to worship. 
In fact, some of your translations, uh, if you're not using the ESV, some of your translations might actually use that word worship to translate. The, the Hebrew word is the word for serve, but it can have the meaning of worship. And we know that that's what is being depicted here in this passage because in chapter 10, Pharaoh is starting to get a little weak-kneed. Weak <laughs> he's starting to feel the oppression of all these plagues, and he says, Moses, fine, go. Remember, he, he does this repeatedly. Right? The plagues come, go, get out of here, get, get out of here because I can't handle anymore. And then every single time they go, okay, we'll, we'll go. And he says, no, hold on a second. I changed my mind. Right? He says things like, go, your, your men, go just for three days. No, we need our women too. Go send your women, but leave your children. No, 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 that's not going to work. We need our children. At chapter 10, after the darkness, Pharaoh says, you can take your women, you can take your children, you can take your men, but leave your cattle. Leave your herds. And what does Pharaoh say, or Moses say? No, 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 no. We need our cattle so that we can sacrifice and serve the Lord in the wilderness. And sacrifice is worship. Sacrifice occurs in the context of worship. You see, that is what God is doing. He is bringing his people out of Egypt, bringing them out of the bondage of slavery so that they would worship him, that they would serve him. That is what it means to serve the Lord. It means to worship him. And as Israel would do this, as they would give themselves in service to the Lord through sacrifice and praise, they would be declaring that they are coming under God's authority for their life. That they'd be having their minds and their affections, their, their hearts and their hands reoriented towards God. You see, in worship, that's what we're doing. We're declaring who it is that we serve with our whole life. It's an act of service, this worship service. Have, have you all noticed that? Like, that's what we call this, right? It's a worship service because in the midst of it, as we sing and as we pray and as we sit under his word and dine at his table, what we are doing is serving the Lord. That's what we're doing in worship. This service has implications not just for this hour or two that we're together. It has implications for all of our life. You see, it begins in worship, but it overflows into every area. And so for Israel, as they were farming their fields and raising their cattle, as they were being married and given into marriage, they would have had the song of worship, that there is no other God in the universe. The song of worship, that there is a God that is merciful, unlike the gods of Egypt. They would have had this song ringing in their hearts, and so too do we. See, friends, we, we gather for this time so that we would be reoriented as we go into our weeks and as we go into our work and as we go into our homes and as we go into our schools and we go on vacation, we'd be reoriented to what is true about the universe, that God is the Lord over it. That is why we gather for worship, that we are reminded again and again and again who it is that we serve and who it is that we honor, not just now, but in all our life. That's why the Apostle Paul will say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's worship language. And it holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How is it that we are not conformed to the world? How is it that we resist the 
the language, the, the invitations of the world to, to put aside faith in the one true God and embrace any other pseudo-God? How is it that we are not conformed to the world? Our minds are renewed, and that begins right here. It begins right here in worship. You see, Paul has more in mind than simply the gathering of God's people in the assembly. He has every part of our life in mind. That wherever we go and whatever we do, that we would honor the Lord. But it begins right here. Service to the Lord. And so for Christians, what this means is that worship's non-negotiable. And not in a legalistic sort of a way. In a joyful sort of a way. That God has given us this wonderful gift that we can come together and sing and pray that we can hear his word and eat at his table, that this is a gift from the Lord. And so we come together. And so let me just be, you know, it's the beginning of summer. And so many of us are going to go on vacation. Probably all of us are going to go on vacation, right? I am. (laughs) And it's good, right? Like, as beautiful as the mountains are, sometimes it's good to just get away, right? Um, maybe it's you're getting away from these mountains and going to other mountains or you're going to the beach or you're going to do whatever you're going to stay at home and paint walls like what my vacations will be like this year Um, maybe that's what you're going to be doing but regardless of of where you go and please hear what I'm saying you need time away you need to rest but don't take a vacation from church you see when you go to the mountains and when you go to the beach or if you have a staycation Go to another church. I mean, we, we live in a time and in a place where you, you, there's probably nowhere in America that you can't find a church to attend. Now, some are going to be a little bit more different than us, right? But if you need help, I can help you. I can help you find a church to attend on a Sunday morning when you're at the beach. Don't take time away, and it's not in a legalistic sort of a way. This isn't like I have to go. If I miss one week, then God is going to smoke me, right? Like, that's not why we do it. We do it because we get to, because our hearts need this, because our souls are made to worship. That is why we do it. That is why wherever we are, we should, we should find an hour or two on a Sunday morning, and meet with God's people. For I'll be honest, as a pastor, you know, this is a work day, right? It's a fun work day, but it's a work day. And so when we're off, when, you know, in two Sundays, Doug's going to preach for us, and I'm not going to be here, but my family and I, were going to go somewhere else and sit under someone else's preaching and be with God's people. And it is a reminder to us that the kingdom of God is bigger than CTK. Did you know that? It really is, and it's bigger than the PCA, and it's bigger than the Reformed world. It's good for us to be reminded of that, and to sing, and to pray, and to fellowship with God's people in other places, in other communities, and in other fellowships. So so let me just encourage y'all. Let me encourage y'all. Take time off. Take time away. Rest. Put your feet up at the beach. Paint some walls. Do whatever it is that you're going to do. But don't take vacation from church. Go and meet with the Lord. Go and meet with God's people. Spend time with him because that is what we're made for. He is the God that we serve. 
He's the God that we serve because he is the merciful God. He is the one true God. Now, if you all are familiar with the last battle, if you've read it, then you know it doesn't end with God's, pretend God's being mixed with the true God. You know that it doesn't end with Aslan leaving his world to be bound by the false god Tashlin or Tash, nor his, does he leave it to those who are leading Narnia astray. Instead, Aslan returns. And when he returns, he roars. Remember, he's a lion. And in his roar, he set things right. Night fell upon Narnia and the creatures and all the men. They were ushered in through that doorway, through that barn. They were ushered through and they saw Aslan face to face. And for some, it was excruciatingly painful experience because they looked into his face and they were sent away in judgment. But for others, they looked in his face and there was great joy and celebration because they knew of his mercy. But regardless of whether there was judgment or joy or menace or mercy, all knew who the true Aslan was. That's what these plagues tell us. That's what these signs show us, that Yahweh, he is the true God. That he is greater than the pseudo-gods of Egypt and the pseudo-gods of our world. That, that these signs tell us that Yahweh is the merciful God. That through judgment, he brings mercy to his people. They are signs that tell us that Yahweh, he is the God that we serve. And so, people of God, let us do that. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you that you brought judgment upon the wicked. and You have brought grace and mercy upon your people. That is nothing that we have earned or we have achieved for ourselves. That is something that you have done for us. Something that you have achieved on our behalf through your son Jesus. And for that, we worship you. And we praise you and say, you are the only God. You are the God deserving of our worship and our service because you have been merciful and gracious. You have been powerful and you have judged the wicked. And so we praise you. We worship you. We honor you and we serve you today and tomorrow and all the days of our life. We pray in the matchless name of Christ and all God's people said together.